Wine Monk, Arizona Wine Podcast by Cody Vladimir Burkett. Hey guys, uh, doing something a little bit different today. Uh, this podcast was recorded a little over a month ago, uh, and it was a larger segment uh, with the Mrs. Hipster himself, Alexander Ignative. Uh, what I did here is I split it into two parts. Uh, this is technically part two because this was the latter half of the conversation where we got into talking about beer uh, and a little bit about wine distribution and beer distribution. Uh, I decided to post this first because we do talk a little bit about the Four Peaks purchase by Anheuser-Busch. Even though this is late news for everybody, um, it's still relevant now. It's just that I'm sorry it took me so long to get this here. Part one, featuring the wine, uh, the Passion Cellars Grenache, shall be posted later this week. Uh, thank you guys, and uh, enjoy. Going on a similar note, as you heard repeatedly from every from people at almost every single winery today, yeah, um, about the recent purchase and acquisition oh, of Four Peaks, uh, Four Peaks right. by Amheiser Bush. Sure. And I'm particularly interested in your take, as you've said this about five thousand four hundred seventy-seven times today to people. Um, but we're repeating it here because I think it needs to be said because it's valuable to have kind of an outsider's opinion. Well, uh, to be fair, I don't recall that I've had any Four Peaks beer. I understand their beer is pretty good. Uh, regarded to be among the class of Arizona craft beer. Which makes sense because InBev doesn't buy things that are crap. Now, granted, they did buy something that was good and turned it into crap, i.e. Red Hook... Uh, but they learned their lesson. So what do I think? I think that Four Peaks is going to produce more beer. It'll probably be at least to the same quality, if not better quality. It's Their acquisition of Four Peaks will be different than their acquisition of Goose Island. Goose Island was in a strange position because they were um, stuck geographically. They could not expand. Physically, had no physical plant to go to. They occupied an entire city block in the city of Chicago. They had nowhere to go. And to, for them to expand production, they had to either build an off-site brewery at what would have been a ruinous expense, uh, or contract the brewing out, which they didn't want to do, or sell out. So they sold out, which is fine. Um, I support selling out. Anybody wants to buy me out, like a million dollars, I'm your man. I'll put that out there right now, Cody. A million dollars. If you know anybody who wants to give me a million dollars to shill for them, I will do it. I sadly do not, because mostly uh, I would have asked them to shill for me first. Yeah. <laughs> Fair enough. Um, Sorry. So, no, no, that, I mean, I'm just saying. But uh, I, I don't think... My understanding of the Four Peaks deal is that it was just a really very good deal that was offered to Four Peaks. Um, I'm, not, I'm not like Revolution Brewing. I don't take a hard line on people selling out. Um, Revolution Brewing, of course, they're a bunch of communists, literally. They talk about it, they celebrate the revolution, they make really good beer, they're in Chicago, they have a strong position on Goose Island, for several reasons. Um, but, I just don't, uh, and they're, they're, Revolution Brewing will never sell out. Um, I, I don't know that not selling out is a good business plan. I do think nobody should be worried about the quality of Four Peaks. I think what they should be worried about is shelf access for craft brewery. 
in the in the state, it's going to be tougher. Um, I don't know how many distributors there are in the state of Arizona. I don't know offhand either. All I know of is one to. Uh, all I know of is three, and I don't remember the names of two. But the third is Quench. But in Mississippi, for example, we have ten distributors right now. When I first got involved in the craft beer movement, we had twelve distributors in Mississippi. That was five years ago. No, yeah, six years ago. When. In 1982, which is largely considered one of the worst years for beer retail sales of all time, post-prohibition, there were 53 or 56 distributors in the state of Mississippi. So consolidation is the key word in distribution. What happens in consolidation and distribution is that the distributors gobble each other up, they gobble up their brands, and then they fight over shelf space. And what will happen is that the most profitable at-volume brands controlled by a distributor will get the most shelf space controlled by the distributor. And so what will happen is that, particularly in a state like Arizona, which my understanding is does not have a fair dealing law. This is, to my understanding, correct, but I don't I also remember that. So Mississippi has a fair dealing law that says that distributors, if they have contracts to for suppliers, it's what... Uh, beer manufacturers are called in our laws suppliers all have to be treated equally so Mississippi right now has no way for InBev to bring in their crazy incentive system where they will pay literally millions of dollars in bonuses for for their distributors to distribute 95 to 99% of what they distribute as an Anheuser-Busch InBev product now, in Mississippi, that's not a big problem because literally 1% of all the beer sold in the state of Mississippi is Mississippi-manufactured craft beer. We don't have the volume, and we drink a lot of Bud Light in the state of Mississippi. I'm sorry to admit it, but it's true. Um, but the, the primary issue is in a state that has a lot of craft beer penetration, where we're talking about 6 to 10% of your marketplace is craft beer, all of a sudden, now, InBev owns five sizable craft beer brands. Right? They're all... They all were regional. Right? Widmer, Red Hook, Goose Island, now Four Peaks, and I can't remember what the other one or two are. Um, but... They were all sizable before InBev bought them. They were all regional powerhouses. And with the exception of Red Hook, they have all grown into national mainstays of, you know, that were essentially f- the former craft beer products. And they take up a lot of shelf space. And it's not like they're taking it up with Bourbon County Stout in the case of Goose Island, right? They're taking it up with 312 and Honkers and Goose Island Pale Ale, which are very nice beers. I drink them. I like them. Um, but the sad fact of the matter is that they get as much self shelf space uh, Goose Island does as some of my Mississippi craft beers do, uh, which, as the executive director of the Mississippi Brewers Guild, kind of disturbs me. Because if they were bringing in the high-end Goose Island stuff, I wouldn't be so concerned. 
because uh, on price point and quality, I think that the, the in-state beers that I'm involved with, which is all of the Mississippi in-state beers, compete very favorably with those high-end beers. Uh, quality, uh, flavor, availability, uh, we're, we're very good. Uh, but on the mass market appeal stuff like 312, which is the wheat ale, mm-hmm. um, and the, you know, the honkers and the pale, we don't have the volume, and we don't have you know that the price point at that ABV to compete. You know our least expensive beers start at nine dollars a six pack for craft beer, which is not bad. Um, but Goose Island, because they're an InBev house now, can produce a similar quality pale ale to my client's Devil's Harvest, for example, which actually we just went down to $8 a six-pack on that. Um, they sell Goose Island pale ale for six forty-nine a six-pack. And unless you are dedicated to Mississippi craft beer, it's hard to persuade yourself on a price point that my client's beer is a buck fifty better. I think it is, ingredient-wise, it it is. But is the average beer consumer going well, to have the palate to discern that, or going no. to care? No. And so that's the problem. You know, the, the shelf space is not there, and it's just. It, that's really the fight. It's not an, I mean, Four Peaks is not going to change. They may get better. That's Goose Island's top shelf stuff. Got better and it got national distribution. So if you want to see an Arizona brewery that employs people in Arizona to brew their beer, take a national stage, that's what's going to happen with Four Peaks. And they'll be putting out better high-end stuff. But it's going to seriously affect the local and regional craft beer in you know in, in Arizona and in the Southwest. Yeah, I mean it's nowhere near like say if Stone sold out, you know something like that. If something like that happens. You know, it's goodbye to craft beer. I'm afraid. You know, because then all the big guys will start selling out. The good news is that no, that. InBev and SAB Miller can't afford to buy them all out. Yeah. Yet. <laughs> Yet. Um, I don't know that they'd want to either. You know, Microsoft, um, back when, you know, Windows was like the only game in town, they were happy to have 10% of, you know, the OS's out there be some, you know, Apple and Linux because, hey, look, there's competition. Right? Yeah. You can show the regulators, we're not a monopoly. We're not even an oligopoly. You know? We're just the biggest guy in town, that's all. So, there's value. Um, and I don't think it's it's cynical, necessarily, because particularly Anheuser-Busch, they have some of the greatest minds on the planet in terms of beer yeast and uh, the sheer technology of how they brew is astounding. Um, the uh, at the Great American Beer Festival, you will you will go there, and uh, Anheuser Busch always has their 
East guys do sessions, and it's full of craft brewers just listening about how Anheuser-Busch maintains their yeast, because their yeast has been consistently maintained from the day Augustus Bush brought it over from frickin' Germany in the 19th century. They've got the original strain of yeast still going. And for beer, that's phenomenal. It's unheard of. It's, uh... They, they have the best techniques for yeast preservation, harvesting, maintenance in the world. Um, and so there's a lot of institutional expertise there. They're very good at what they do. Um, but they're also, you know, cutthroat businessmen. And that's just kind of what happens. You know, you, you don't get big in the, in the beer business. If you're not growing, you're dying. I don't know how it is with wine. It can be, sort of, but not really. I don't, you know, we're still such a small industry yet that we're no. still... And even the giants of the industry, like Stronghold and Page Springs and Caduceus to a lesser extent, um, you know, they're still not widely received nationally. I mean, right now we're all working together to... It's kind of the Ben Franklin school. It's like, we must all hang together or else we'll all hang separately. Oh, by the way, I should say, nothing I say uh, reflects the official opinion of the Mississippi Brewers Guild or any of my clients... Now, that's just my opinion, um, and it's also the, just the, the facts of the matter. I mean, Anheuser-Busch is astounding uh, at the business of beer, and they will, uh, they like to win. Ain't nothing wrong with winning. And it's like, they're not doing anything illegal as far as I know, um, and, uh, they know what is a good beer property. They know how to find talent. You know, and you know, wine is obviously different because it's so dependent on. You know, again, it's an agricultural product. There's only so much you can do uh, removed from the place where the grape is grown. And one last beer question before we get back to the wine. Yeah. Um, now, I know you didn't get to try too many Arizona beers while you were here, which is partly my fault. If oh, I okay. pushed, we would have gone to Flags, if we could have gone to Flagstaff earlier and hit the microbrews there. And really, right now, you're only been tasting that. Uh, a few things scattered throughout um, 4 8 Wine Works right. and uh, Oak Creek Brewery. But I still have to ask out of the Arizona beers you've tried this trip. Which did you like the most? Um, I liked... There was one at that that I particularly liked. Uh, I thought their Road Rash IPA was good. Arizona Trail Ale, I recalled after I saw the can that I had had that back in Mississippi. does not travel well. Carbonation on that is pretty low. It's great on tap. Uh, did not like it out of the can. Uh, that was a couple months ago. But I would stand by that. I think it was great on draft. Uh, Road Rash IPA was quite solid. Um, Prescott, uh, not impressed. 
the other three beers that I had at four eight, which I can't remember offhand, but there one was, the, was uh, Wanderlust, one was the Pie Hole Porter, and I the Pie Hole Porter and the uh, Mother Road IPA. Right. So Mother Road Black IPA, delicious. Pie Hole Porter, delicious. Wanderlust, pretty good, but I'll be honest, my client does a better version of that. It's called Mississippi Fire Ant. I'll be shipping some to Cody so he can review it in the future just for fun. Um, but it was good. I mean, I really, the, the Pie Hole Porter and the Mother Road, Mother Road was the most perfect expression of a black IPA I've ever had. Uh, which, of course, you know, the BJCP says we're supposed to call that Cascadian Dark Ale. Um, and I say, a pox upon BJCP, fie on you bad people who make bad decisions. Um, you know, take candle. Yeah, basically. Yeah, very nice. You know, take candle. No, I'm saying you know, take candle. Oh, yeah. yeah. <laughs> um, but, uh, I thought, you know, I mean, the, the Prescott uh, one was perfectly average. I brewed better myself, and I'm a terrible brewer. Um, sorry, Prescott. Um, I'm sure that you have other beers that are excellent. But that one did not do it for me, especially not compared against the Pie Hole Porter, which, whew, Nelly. That, you know, made me feel all tingly in my no place. Um, <laughs> um, I liked uh, everything at Oak Creek, I thought, was high quality. I thought their Hefeweizen really was exactly where I like a Hefeweizen. Not too much banana, not too much clove, not as German, more American heffy, uh, but not an American wheat. Definitely legit heffy. Compares favorably with uh, Crooked Letter Hefeweizen out of uh, Ocean Springs, Mississippi, which I drink regularly, which is why I compare it to that. Um, Makes sense. Uh, I thought of the Oak Creek stuff, what I was disappointed in that I thought I would like a lot was the Scotch Ale. It had a very good uh, flavor balance. Uh, it, it definitely hit all the right spots for a Scotch Ale. A little smoky. Um, it was either undercarbonated or it just had a really poor head retention. I can't figure out uh, what it is. And that head retention there would be affected primarily by whether they put something like a Carafoam or a Carapils malt in there to promote head retention. With a Scotch Ale, they probably had some oatmeal in it, which should have helped head retention a good bit, but it did not have any head on it at all. Um, their double IPA, the 20... 20... The something 20, but it's... It had 20, 20 hops. hops. Right, it had 20 it hops something. in it. That was very nice indeed. Um, it was, I would be lying to you if I got, if I told you I got any real flavor notes out of the hops other than hop. Um, it was just with 20 hops in it, you're not going to. Yeah. Unless something was expressed more than any other and it wasn't. And so it had a nice hop forward flavor. It lasted throughout the beer. Had a very good malt base, so it held up. It wasn't, it didn't have a big pucker factor for something with that many IBU. Uh, overall, I thought that was a superbly balanced beer. Uh, their porter was good. Their ESB was solid. But the Heffy and the 
and the uh, double IPA really stood out to me. I thought those were spectacular at Oak Creek, and all the rest of their beers were very good. No stinkers at all, which when, you're, when you've got that many on tap, it's hard to do. You know, you just can't... Uh, It's hard to maintain that level of quality, which leads them to believe they have a very tight operation. So I was impressed overall, except for Prescott Brewing. Bad dog. Bad dog. Uh, I've had uh, my favorite beer from them, and that's rarely done, and you can only get it really in the tasting room. It's their Manzanita Red Ale, uh, which I enjoyed. I normally don't like Red Ales, but the last time I did a full flight, there, which was, oh God, a year or so ago. That was the one that really resonated with me at the time. Um, but also, to be fair, you know, by the end of the day, our palates are pretty, yeah, pretty worn. Coffee grounds can only do so much. But yeah, well, all I can say is, you know, one advantage that's easy to do with beer, it's harder, it's much harder to do with wine, is mouthfeel. With beer, it's real easy. You throw in some flaked oats, you know, or some other flaked grain, um, and that produces that silkiness that's required for, you know, stouts, porters to a lesser extent. Um, and uh, that can often be the determining factor, particularly if you've got a thinner beer. Again, I'm going back to that Prescott stout because that was just poor. <laughs> Sorry. Hate, hate to dump on Prescott, but a little haterade's got to be spread somewhere. Oh, and with wine, that's really all... Well, not all, but it's mostly influenced with the grape. Sometimes in the yeast that's used, um, because there are different strains of yeast. Um, sometimes just in how long, especially with a red. But, but like, how, how many... That, that's one question I wanted to ask you is that we talk about strains of yeast. I mean, in beer, you know, the Saccharomyces service, yeah, there's so many, you know, I mean, you know, Dogfish Head famously has got like 35 different yeasts that they just keep going. How many different yeasts does a winery typically maintain? Depends on the winery, and depends on the winemaker, and depends on the winemaker's choices, and sometimes they'll only maintain yeast for a year and then decide that the result was poor, use a different yeast, um, or you can do what James Callahan does, and uh, with some of his reds, like his Wild Syrah, um, which I talked to you about last night. Yeah. Uh, basically what he does is he takes the yeast that's growing on the Malvasia and Viognier, yeah. or what he's making this year, Marsan, uh, with it, and propagates that, and then uses that to ferment the rest, and so it's a co-ferment, wild ferment. And I don't really know that anyone's done any genetic testing on those wild yeast strains in the Wilcox bench or not, but I, actually, as far as I'm aware, no one has. But, um, it depends. But by and large, you're not maintaining these... Uh, some wineries might be doing this, I don't know, and there are probably places that do maintain those yeasts regularly. But by and large, you get your yeast per year. And then you propagate them as needed, to make the wine, and then after the wine is made, then the yeast dies off, and then you don't worry about it until the next year. Very rarely are people recultivating their yeast to have a constant supply. At least as far as Arizona is concerned, maybe some of the bigger California wineries are different. I don't know. 
um, because I don't know really anything well, about how, how big how big a factor is yeast? Pretty big. Yeah. Uh, case in point, we actually um, this is basically the best barrel of Grenache. Um, all of the other Grenache barrels we blended into other things, and we used four different yeasts. The idea was to experiment, and this was the yeast that turned out the best. And Jason liked it so much that it's like, yeah, no, this isn't going to be for, this is going to be just wine club. Um, because this is the best quality Grenache we've got. This is what we're doing with it. Um, so it can have a huge influence, and I don't know as much about how much of an influence it has. That part of me is hazy because I've never really done much winemaking. Um, most of my experience with winemaking is helping to crush the grapes on the crush pad and helping to harvest. Um, and listening to other people talk about it. Um, that's something I plan on maybe learning next crash season. Um, hanging out more in Wilcox, hanging out with James Callahan, hanging out with maybe Ken Callaghan, and who's kind of the godfather of Arizona wine. You know, hanging out with Mark Barras and the gang at Flying Leap and harassing them with these questions and that sort of thing. But by and large, there are different yeasts that can be used to... Oh, Leah knows a lot about this, too, at Eridus. Um... Um, they did, I guess, two Sauvignon Blancs or something with two different yeasts. Because there's some that are almost, like, designed to bring out certain flavor characteristics. Sure. Um. Which, well, I mean, from a beer perspective, yeast is the most important thing after, you know, the malt and the hop in determining flavors. But in terms of character, yeast drives everything. So... You know, whether it's, uh, you know, Saison or Farmhouse Ale or, uh, you know, straight up English Ale, American Ale, a lager. You know, lager yeast, of course, is the sort of uh, the class of yeast uh, uh, determinism. East Darwinism? I don't know. But, it, you know, basically, like, you know, lager yeast is a special thing. Um, not really a lot of, you know, ale yeasts are a lot more varied. Lager yeast, there's only a few. Um, and that's chiefly because of the temperature at which the yeast uh, does its work. Right? Ale yeast, much higher temperature, much wider temperature range. Uh, Lager yeast, very low temperature, um, low, a short range too. Like uh, I think uh, one of the maybe the German Pilsner lager yeast is uh, got a six degree temperature range. That's Fahrenheit, hmm. uh, at which it's optimal. Whereas you know for some ale yeasts, you know twenty five degree range, not a problem. Right, they may throw off goofy esters and whatever, but the way you fix goofy esters in beer, I don't know how it works in wine, but the way you fix it in beer is that you let it sit. You let it, you know, age out, which if it's not a you know, an IPA or something that has a lot of hot forward notes you want to preserve, you know, sitting on an ale for a while is not a problem. Right? Especially if you get rid of funky, you know, things. Uh, smells and off flavors and that sort of thing. Uh, the best advice that my friend ever gave me, and he owns uh, Southern Prohibition Brewing, 
and he learned how to brew beer at Real Ale in Austin, Texas. He's like, look, leave the beer alone. I was like, man, I'm having, you know, I was having issues with the lager that I did. He's like, man, just leave it alone. Let it sit there for a while. Is your temperature right? I'm like, yeah. So is it in the dark? Yeah. I was like, leave it the hell alone. He's like, it's not. He's like, it's a lager. It's designed to be aged. Let it sit in primary for, you know, four, five, six weeks. Don't worry about it. And then you put it out of your mind. When you remember it, move it over to secondary. You know, lager it. Diacetyl rest, which gets rid of the diacetyl flavors. Um, and then, you know, keg it and keep it cold. And just don't think about it. So the, the, the number one thing you do is leave it the hell alone. I don't know if that's true for wine. Some. Sometimes. Other times there's other ways to fix faults. And that's going to make things needlessly complex in about an hour longer. <laughs> to get into all those ways. I know, but I mean, but the like thing about it for beer is, the if your beer is bad... The easiest solution is let it sit there for a while. Come back, you know, two weeks, four weeks, six months later, and it may not be crap anymore. You know, worst case scenario, it's still beer. You can drink it. You know, unless it's truly contaminated, in which case you could have something much more wonderful than beer. You could have a crazy-ass wild ale. Mm-hmm. It'll change your life. Make women love you. Put hair on your chest, top of your head beer, you know, wherever you need hair. Down in your matrimonial necessities. 